Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Good evening and welcome to Alexandra Marshall Live. If you've been watching for a while, you know I love to go out into the wilderness and hunt down interesting and insightful culture warriors and bring them to share their experience. Now I made a fascinating addition to this list of individuals last weekend at the Australians for Science and Freedom conference hosted by the wonderful Gigi Foster, a friend of this show. While I was there, I found myself on a media panel with freelance podcaster Victor Dalziel. He describes himself as a self-taught content creator, academic researcher, stylist, and amateur DJ with a master's degree in international relations and PhD in philosophy. Victor, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for inviting me on. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. Well, Victor, media is not for the faint-hearted and certainly not in the age of social media where not only do we have to contend with the worst personality traits of our fellow human beings, you have to do so in an environment curated, governed and owned by Silicon Valley. Now, you arrived at podcasting in an unconventional way. Can you share with us what made your decision to jump into this totally crazy world? I mean, was it a particular moment that brought you over here or has this always been a dream of yours? Well, I mean, like so many other people um, during the COVID era, um, I was lost, angry, confused, frustrated. And, um, and within my final three months of, um, of lockdown, um, just for being unvaccinated, I decided that I needed to have an outlet for, for my anger. And so I, I realised that I am one of those people that is very good at talking. I'm one of those people that gets a lot of relief through just talking it through. And so then I decided that podcasting would be like a perfect match for me. And as I mentioned to you, I started out with the traditional channels. I started out on YouTube, um, wasn't so successful, um, ended up getting striked off there and then made the move to Rumble. And look, I haven't really looked back since moving on to Rumble. It's been something that I was hesitant to do in, in the first place, um, but then... Now that I've moved across, uh, I've actually turned my channel into something a little bit more successful than I ever thought it was going to be. Um, more subscribers, more views than I ever got on YouTube. 
Yes, well, let us dispel a little myth here. I often hear it said, and we heard it at the Australians for Science and Freedom Conference, that podcasting is somewhat of a glamorous profession and a chilled out life in independent media. Now, I remember, you know, my years during COVID when I wasn't allowed in a studio, I had my camera sort of balanced on a pile of books. I had post-it notes stuck to the edge. I had a lamp kind of leaning really dangerously onto the whole setup, and every now and then it'd lean towards me, you know, during interview. So give us a little idea, set the scene. What's it like for you podcasting? Is it a, a wonderful, glamorous life or like me, are you up at God knows what hour of the morning trying to do all this stuff? Okay. So it is definitely not all tropical islands and Bugattis. Let me, let me tell you. And I was certainly starting out. Um, that was the image um, that they certainly create is very, very different from the reality. Um, I wish that I could turn the camera around and show you what I am looking at, because I'm sure that you understand that it is anything but glamorous. For example, you said you use books. I use a pile of about, let me see, about 30 to 40 CDs. And there's obviously lights, there's a fan here. Um, I'm in a shed, which considering it is the, the middle of, I know this is going on in the evening, but right now it's the middle of the day. And um, so it's probably easily 30 degrees, hence my casual attire, um, because it is, it's baking hot. The, the reality is in terms of like uh, earnings and um, earnings for, for the people at the very top uh, are fantastic. For those at the bottom, like, like myself, um, you have to be very, very realistic and have a reality check on what you can expect to earn. Certainly within, I mean, I'm only six months into this and I basically have earned nothing. Um, but uh, for the next, I say would, for maybe the first two to three years, the expectations have to be quite realistic that it's going to be a hard slog. As you mentioned, it is multiple hours per day because it's not just about presenting my content and what I have to say. It's about keeping up with what's happening all around the world. It's about keeping contact with pop culture as much as I dislike that. Um, it is important to be able to speak to different audiences and try and capture as many people as possible and trying to interwind that all into what you do. And then to me, the, the hardest decision that I make probably daily and weekly in regards to content, and I'm sure you're the same, that is just choosing because there is so much to be able to talk about. There's so much to be angry about. There's so much going on to be able to discuss every single day. Um, and then once you've chosen that, the pre-production, the post-production, it is, look, it is anything but glamorous. But in saying that, I love it and I'm going to absolutely stick with it. Um, yeah. Yeah, well, people forget that to be a podcaster, you also have to be a scriptwriter, a set dresser, a video editor. I mean, you're a master of all trades because unlike our billion-dollar-a-year ABC, you're not surrounded by a team of helpers and researchers who make that all happen around you. And all I can say is thank heck for my misused years in high school, which I spent on using uh, the old movie maker. Now, that's showing my age. Like, I know what CDs are, I know what cassettes are, and I used to use the dreaded movie maker, which would die all the time at the worst possible moment. Now, I wanted to set the scene so that people understand when we talk about independent media, how much effort goes into creating this environment that we engage in. Now, I noticed you've done a lot of work with Gigi, particularly on the topic of COVID vaccines and problematic pandemic actions that took place. As an independent voice 
in the wilderness, what do you feel has been missing from the conversation in the mainstream press? Because few topics have been covered as heavily as COVID. And yet, like you, many Australians feel as if they're not actually getting the full story. We're barely getting half the story. Um, well, the, the main issue is, is something that um, psychologists have been warning about for probably the last 20, 30 years, and that is this black and white thinking. And what, one of the most extraordinary things throughout the whole COVID pandemic was just how much the, the politicians, the health officials, the bureaucrats all engaged in this idea of like, this idea of good and evil. And and that, that the fact that there hasn't been nuance, the fact that there hasn't been an allowance made for a grey area, or even just that, you know what, there hasn't even been an allowance for debate around certain issues. It has been one narrative and that narrative has been pushed from all aspects. It's been pushed from the politicians, the health officials, and um, so most surprising at all is of all is the, the media. The journalists have jumped on board with all of that for, you know, their own self-interest, of course, but um, also just because you know, they got a huge lump sum of money at the beginning of COVID from the Australian government to assure that they would um, be on message, I think, throughout the entire pandemic. So I think the main thing that was missing was just the openness to, to ideas, the openness to debate and just the shutting down and cancelling of any voice that was descending from the, the narrative. Now, what I thought was interesting about your presentation during the weekend's panel was that you are not a ragey podcaster. The podcast Who's Who Chase clicks uh, by creating drama online for the sake of drama. Now, I noticed that in your Vaccine Injured Australia video, you calmly and clearly, for instance, imparted information about a class action suit that people could join, uh, which I didn't hear on MSN anywhere, by the way. No one has mentioned it. Your style is interesting because... I believe we are approaching a time in Australia where we need to have a chat about what kind of media we want going forward. I mean, the viewers are the market and as content creators, we control what sort of quality is on offer for that market. Now, whether or not mainstream media recovers its sanity will depend on the market pressure placed on it by independent podcasters like yourself and channels like this. Now, independent press, uh, they made a lot of headway during COVID because all those chasms, as you said, opened up of content where they just simply wasn't a conversation happening. But where do you see this going? Do you think we are at the edge where the press could either go into the, oh, we're the only one truth, we're radicalised into this clickbait scenario, or are we going to head more towards being professional outfits and providing a proper balance to the mainstream media? So um, in my, um, uh, from my aspect, most of the people that are um, under the age of 30 who have watched my channel and engaged with my content have given me the advice that I need to yell more, shout more, be deliberately controversial and say things that are deliberately going to create a clickbait situation. Um, they're very much focused on creating, you know, that really unique an outrageous 15 to 30 second clip that's going to potentially go viral or get the clicks uh, you're going to YouTube shorts or Instagram stories. That, that seems to be where their attention span is at. And I'm what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to create something that is authentic, something that is real and something that steps outside of that, that temptation to be sensational, to, to, to have clickbait. And 
I think I'm just trying to create a conversation that is much calmer, that is much more inclusive, and that gets the message across, um, and hopefully in not too a boring a way. But um, that speaking to what you're saying about the clickbait within the mainstream media, what is really interesting to me is that how much they demonise online content creators and even people such as ourselves, and yet how much they actually cannibalise the worst of our industry and then make it their own. And you see this this back and forth that happens between online creators and the, the traditional corporate media. And I think it's because they are hitting the panic button because they understand that people like yourself, um, I don't know much about the channel that we're on, but I know that Alan Jones has moved across there. All of these things, every single person and it doesn't matter if it's just one person, 100 people, 1,000. Every single person that they lose is an audience member that they're losing. It chips away at their power. It chips away at their legitimacy. So I think what they're doing is they're, in a very clunky way, they're looking at online creators and they're saying, what makes them so popular? The, the issue I have is that they seem to be looking at the most sensational people, like whether it's Alec Jones, which, by the way, I do love watching, but just simply because he is so outrageous. Um, but they're also looking at people like Mr. Beast. So what they're doing is they're looking at some of the, what I would say is the most extreme or I don't want to say worst, but controversial aspects of online content. And they're thinking that they can recreate that in, in their world. And it, it's, just, it's just not working for them. So rather than trying to set the standard, they're panicking and they're just trying to pump out the same sort of stuff that they think that people want because of what they've engaged with online. But there are so many different audiences online. And I would say that your audience and hopefully mine are looking for something a little bit more sophisticated, um, a little bit more nuanced, um, and potentially something that's not just literally the McDonald's of entertainment. Well, you raise an interesting point there with the TikTok, because I think you said you did other content as well before news and media content. Yeah. Uh, with TikTok, how do we handle a generation that is so conditioned to have these short attention spans. I mean, I was listening to a teacher in Victoria and at their last big teacher's council there for the state, they were saying they've taken away the long form text and put in short stories, and I mean like a page short story, to handle the fact that their students have no attention span. Now that's only going to make it worse. I mean, I feel that's a really bad idea, but how are we going to manage news media in an age where people only want to listen to 10 to 20 seconds of a serious issue. That sounds like a, a massive problem uh, facing not just our content creation, but also mainstream media. Well, um, well, I think that it's important. Well, I, I pushed back initially against the whole idea of going on TikTok, but then I realised that, that, that the idea that I was too good or whatever for, for TikTok or not engaging with young people because they have short attention spans. I just push that aside. And it's not about me giving in to this 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 new medium. What it was, it was about me recognising that there is a huge potential audience on TikTok. And so many people, and I came across this at the um, uh, at the conference that with the academics, are, are very dismissive of dismissive of this. Um, however, that audience, that fifteen to twenty two year old um, audience, they are all there. They're on their Snapchat. They're on their TikTok. They do love that content. I create a very different style of content for TikTok. 
But what's interesting is most of the engagement that I get, and I get a lot more clicks on TikTok because they actually encourage uh, new content creators. Um, but what I kind of do, and it's not um, deceitful, but what I'm trying to do is to show the, these young people that, you know, I have this content on TikTok, but I also have this content on Rumble. It's a very, very different style of content. And yes, it is more long form, um, but it's also interesting. So I use the TikTok as a way to kind of introduce myself to the younger audience and then to move them on to the longer content. I understand the idea about engaging uh, young people with where they're at, with um, social media and their, their attention spans. But I also think that it's important that we continue to, to challenge the idea that they only exist in this uh, clickbait 15 second world. I think a lot of young people, and from what I'm hearing and seeing, um, they, they, a lot of them are politically engaged. Um, and what I'm trying to do with what the content that I create is to just challenge them to challenge the idea that they only engage with that short form content and hopefully um, get them involved and interested in topics and challenge the, the, the their attention spans and stretch that out. Um, well, I think when they're really engaged with something they love, they will commit to a longer form. You're totally right. And just to give a, a random example, the press was shocked when we'll call them Generation TikTok fawned all over the Queen during her very sad passing because what they didn't realise is that generation doesn't have many older role models. They don't have much connection to history or the nostalgia of that kind of thing. And so when that happened, they flocked over to it and no one could understand why. It's because just because you give TikTok generation a certain amount of content doesn't mean they're not looking for other content and that there are not other ways to engage with them that they're perhaps not being given by those around them. So congratulations on trying to engage with them there. Now, the biggest problem that I found is no matter how successful you are and how well you build your audience and how great your content is, Silicon Valley can pull the plug on you at any time. Now, I mean, The Spectator is currently fighting the overlords of Facebook. Our videos were routinely cracking 100,000 views. We got up to half a million on some of them. And then we published a news item about Hamas attacking Israel and like that, we've been branded a hate organisation. Apparently we associate with terror. And goodbye, independent media. There is no protection unless you're the ABC or one of the media big boys. Now, you had a similar experience. Can you briefly explain what role censorship is playing in the media? For example, is it causing podcasters to self-censor, to try and avoid being taken offline entirely? And is that curating the news in a way? Uh, definitely self-censoring. Absolutely. Um, and that, that is the ultimate goal. And by, by self-centering, what, what they're doing is they're creating, uh, again, this, this environment where it is, it's their way or the highway. Um, so that is one of the main reasons why I moved across uh, to Rumble, was to try and avoid having to self-censor on YouTube. Um, YouTube uh, contacted me once that, when they gave me the strike and said that I'm allowed to discuss from my own point of view whatever I like as long as I immediately apologise it for it and then debunk it. So either with, <laughs> no, either at the end of the video I say, these are just my opinions. They're not fact. They're not real. They don't agree with this or that. Um, or I had to um, put a massive disclaimer that was honestly about three um, A4 pages long describing how what I had just said was actually false. 
Um, and I, I just don't, my, my, my virtues and values don't allow me to do that. And also I didn't believe that what I was saying was false. Um, I'm one of the people that got caught up during the, um, the great wave of warnings and strikes on YouTube. Um, and I was, I was striked out. Not only that, for whatever reason, um, they chose to shadow ban. Um, one of the other things that perhaps um, happened to yourself is um, YouTube, maybe about 18 months ago, decided that they were going to throttle um, and uh, stop content from going viral from sources in which they either didn't agree or new sources that didn't have established content. So if they couldn't see where you were coming from, perhaps politically or ideologically, they were actually, they, they changed the algorithm to, be, to throttle your content. Um, so this is something that I think happened to me. I, I launched and within weeks I was being quite successful, nowhere near as successful as what you guys have been, but by my standards, I was being successful. I uploaded a video, um, which, um, happened to contra contradict a couple of the WHO guidelines. Um, and because of that, they then completely destroyed, um, my, my channel. Um, and you, you know how important it is to constantly be uploading content and to be present. Um, so to be striked out and then to um, have your your channel become invisible for I think it was about two weeks, that was enough enough to kill me, yeah. Yeah, well that's what's really hard because it's no longer about creating good products, speaking the truth, being interesting or even uh, working your way up through the free markets. It's about what you're allowed to say by this environment that is unelected and it is not obeying its own rules. So the big question that we debated uh, on the panel there after we'd done our individual shows at the Science and Freedom Forum was what to do about censorship. I mean, it's a really big question. It's one facing Australia right now. And it's being asked in an environment where there are different forces who want different things. We've got the mainstream media, which is happy to keep things how they are or even to lean on politicians to tighten up the censorial screws on the rest of us because they don't want us as a free market competitor. We've got the politicians that are happy to you know, let it be because they love having control over the press. If they could write their own headlines, they would. And there, there's this disturbingly close relationship we have between Australia's MSM and the political class who trade faith. I mean, it's the seat on the press bus when there's the next election in exchange for comfy little interviews where you learn absolutely nothing about the next political regime. And that really tests the definition of the free press. But the common people, Daniel, they are pushing, sorry, Victor, they are pushing back against censorship. Sometimes it feels as if we're in this collapsing bubble where we're running out of space. Now, I don't know if you remember, but one person said that we can just keep going to a different platform from YouTube to Rumble, from Facebook to Twitter, from Twitter to Gab, from Gab to Parler. Victor, do things need to change? Like, can we keep running as the independent press? I think it's going to become increasingly harder. Um, and I think the, the thing that is really different about the censorship now um, compared to the censorship in the past, is that they seem to have almost all journalists and reporters on board. They're, in fact, in, in some regards, uh, journalists and reporters for the Washington Post, the New York Times, the ABC, seem to be the biggest cheerleaders for cancelling people. Um, either they're cancelling people either because they simply don't agree with what they have to say or because they recognise that, like yourself, they are genuine competitors for their audience. And I think the fact that there are so many journalists at the top tier um, 
within the corporate media are so on board with this censorship regime is what is so different from in the past. Journalists um, traditionally have held the powerful to account, um, and I feel like this is something that has, uh, has certainly changed in recent times. And um, the other thing that I would say is, and um, it's going to be a hard battle because um, you've not only got things like the Trusted News Initiative, which is um, it, it's an agreement that exists between the BBC, Washington Post, New York Times, ABC, SBS, as well as um, governments, as well as all the social media um, networks. So you basically, during COVID, um, you would come across, they would come across content that they disagreed with or a content creator or a network um, or a podcaster. They would then contact their mates through the Trusted News Initiative who would then act on that and then they would contact the social media networks to take those people down. So this is a huge circle um, and a huge amount of power for small people like particularly myself. I don't stand a chance of fighting against that. I love what you guys have done that. I think, uh, sorry, what you guys have done there. I think that 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 is um, going to be a little bit harder for them to take down, but there, I don't. There's, there's no hiding the fact that right now there is a battle going on between uh, independent creators and the corporate media. And I come back to the fact that I think that the large part of this battle is because they just don't know how to do it. They just don't know how to engage. And this is so obvious when you look at um, networks like CNN, who spent $300 million US to launch CNN Plus, their streaming news service, and it lasted nine months. It just completely collapsed. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to control the narrative, they're trying to control the message, and they're now trying to control online. And one of the ways that they're doing that is by destroying independent media I actually think, I have a bit of a conspiracy theory, I think that they are moving in on YouTube. Um, I think that that is the ultimate goal for those networks because if you see what YouTube and Google are doing, they're just cleaning out the cupboard of everyone that disagrees, everyone that's independent, and they're bringing in all of the established actors. And for the first time in the last uh, 12 months, Three of the biggest earners on YouTube were establishment figures, Jimmy Kimmel um, and, and people like Rachel Maddow, they, these sort of individuals. So it, it's happening. They're taking it over. Yeah. And, and Twitter's doing something very interesting where they're taking establishment figures who were kicked out by mainstream media, uh, at, like the Tucker Carlson's of the world, and there will be lots more of them, don't, don't you worry about that, and making them into a new almost MSM-style media on Twitter. Although we'll, we're not really sure how that's going to play out yet. That's a, a pending project, I think, about what Twitter's up to. Um, they've got a few interesting characters in the works there, but I don't know. I'm still, I'm not sold on it. We'll see how that goes. It's not as clear what Twitter's doing as what things like YouTube are up to. But I mean, we are on the edge of another game. It's all about to change. I don't know if you saw, but we had the AI meltdown for like 24 hours where Sam Altman was sacked from the open AI and then he moved over to Microsoft. And the new AI age for news companies and journalists is going to be interesting because we've already got those two groups of people using things like ChatGPT to write their articles for them, which is something I find uh, worrying. I would never do it myself. But it does allow these giant news companies to cut down on staff 
half, they survive on a lower level of skill and they produce heaps more content, which means they can flood the internet with all of their news items. Now, although this will make MSN more competitive on speed and volume, it will make them less competitive on quality. Now, is technology like AI the end of independent media and journalism, or is it going to be the beginning of a revolution where we might be able to sneak in there with good quality content that's simply not going to be produced by mainstream media? Yeah, well, I want to start off by saying that I love what ChatGPT has done to Google over the last 12 months. <laughs> Any. Um, it, it's, it's wonderful um, just to, to see, I, I look, I'm not a massive fan of the AI, but to see um, the fact that Google, the largest corporation um, on the planet and arguably one of the largest corporations ever, was caught so flat-footed and that they are 18 months behind um, in this technology was, was just brilliant to see. Um, the, the thing that I will say about AI is it's, it's going to potentially, from a negative point of view, lead to a world where, you know, what's real and what's not real can get very much con conflated. Um, I do think that it is going to take jobs. Um, I do engage with AI, um, but just in a very limited capacity, because I understand that even though my content I try to create um, that is high quality, um, factual, um, I understand the importance of, and this may seem a little bit trivial to your audience, but of tiles and titles. And coming from my background, I can't write those, but ChatGPT does an amazing job, um, as long as it's not too political, because it, like all AI, it is programmed by a human and we all know that there are political leanings within AI and certainly within ChatGPT, there is political leanings more towards the, uh, in the US Democrats here, it would be like the Labor or the left. Um, so, and the other thing that I will say that uh, chat, uh, sorry, that AI can't replace is good quality investigative journalism. So they might be able to, it might be really good at pumping out that repetitive rubbish and the clickbait, but it won't necessarily be able to replicate investigative journalism. And I think there'll always be a place for that. The other thing that I would say that it's not very good at is critique and criticism and critical thinking. It's, it's going to take a very long time, I think, before it is capable of doing that. And I think that that is something that both yourself and I do very well and other independent um, uh, journalists do as well, is being able to just question everything. Well, as a former AI software developer, I have like an allergic reaction to using AI stuff. I'm like, no, no. I even keep a normal I, I print. I didn't want to. <laughs> I keep a print diary, right? That's how I spent too long in tech offices doing support for computers. I just don't trust them anymore. But uh, look, the story of COVID, which has been your focus of your podcast up to date, and this is just a final question here. It's almost the point where the so-called conspiracies have become undeniable truths. And even the most disbelieving of our friends now are pretty much realising they've been had for the last couple of years. It's the beginning of the end when things end up in Senate hearings and international investigation and legal challenges and class actions. It's, it's over, right? As a podcaster, what do you see as the next big story for you and the next era you see yourself contributed to as an independent voice? Gosh, that's a, re that's a really big question. Um, I think that the... Um 
the, the COVID uh, era is not quite over as much as people would, would say that it is. I mean, um, the fact that AstraZeneca was successfully sued in the High Court in the UK, like you said, is pretty indicative that it is, it's coming to a close. I might be able to continue on with that for, I would say, about another three to four months. After that, I think it's going to be the censorship battle that is going to probably take centre stage um, because I think that that's only going to get depending on how you look at it, worse or, or better. Um, and um, it's, it's, I think for us it's going to become a, a real battleground for independent uh, users because um, I found out uh, over the last week about NewsGuard, which is um, very similar to the Trusted News Initiative, although this is now uh, something that is funded by the Department of Defence um, to the tune of millions of dollars. And the, the whole point of that is to keep people um, and to censor independent news media that's coming out of America, but also globally. Um, I think that YouTube and uh, channels like that are just making it even more difficult um, to be an independent news producer. Um, but there, there are hope and Rumble is certainly becoming uh, much more powerful. They will push back against that. But it's important to remember that Rumble still doesn't have the, the reach or the brand recognition of YouTube. And at last estimate, I believe it's 40 to 60% of Australians are still completely unaware of Rumble. So this is a huge potential audience that myself and yourself and other independent creators can try and, and tap into. Um, and that that's my, my real hope for now. Whether they come after Rumble, I think they already are. Um, and we're just going to have to stick in there and keep fighting the fight. That's why I remain in politics, so that perhaps we can write some legislation to ensure the freedom of our future news platforms. But look, thank you so much for joining us today. Where can people find you and how can they help you to become and maintain this uh, podcasting lifestyle that we know is so unbelievably glamorous? Yeah, well, one of the good things of having a very unusual name is I'm very easy to find online, although perhaps not so much in Google. Um, so I'm just under Victor Dalziel on Rumble, Instagram, um, and uh, also Twitter. Uh, I'm new to Twitter, so please be gentle. I love your Twitter account, by the way. Um, very inspirational work. Um, and yeah, um, if you want to get involved, please obviously just subscribe to my Rumble channel. I'm got, I've got a lot of very interesting guests coming up from the conference, but also um, just people that within the community. Um, I've, I've, I'm trying to steer away from just being another talking head promoting academics and doctors and experts. I, I think what I'm going to do over the next 12 months is try and engage a little bit more just with community people, community leaders, activists um, and people on the ground and less so with the, the expert class. You've got to be careful with Twitter. I am being currently paid out because apparently it's not okay to like uh, skim chai matcha, skim matcha lattes, which I do, and the internet does not agree with me. But look, thank you so much for oh, all, yeah. All, yeah, yeah, all your hard work, and we're going to follow you with great interest. And I'll put the links up so people can follow you from this channel as well. So thank you very much here, and thank you for joining us today on Matcha. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Thank you. We are joined by our special guest, Senator for the United Australia Party, Ralph Abed. Senator, welcome to my show. Ali, thank you so much. Alexandra Marshall, the greatest Twitterer in the history of Twittering, if that even makes sense. I follow your Twitter. I keep saying it every time I'm on your show. If you're not following Ali Mally, which is her 
her uh, at username on on uh, Twitter. Please go ahead and do it. Hours of entertainment. I'm good, thank you. I'm in the Senate right now on the Senate wing in Parliament House fighting the good fight for common sense, Ellie. A best intro ever. Look, in a, in a break from tradition, I have gone after a diversity guest, dare we say it, a quota, as the left would go. And the reason is that we have had International Men's Day last week, and there was barely a whisper about it in the press. Now, first and foremost, Senator, you're an Aussie bloke. Now, we all know that we don't need these international days of recognition, but are these things such as International Men's Day important to balance out the social narrative of our society, given the stranglehold that progressive feminists have over us recently? I think it is important, but I'm just going to get serious for a minute. I think masculinity in the West, specifically in the West, is in decline at the moment. I think uh, anyone who looks at it for more than 10 seconds could tell you that. We've got men these days that are being emasculated. Um, men who don't even know what they are anymore. We've got men that uh, couldn't tell you what a woman is um, running the show in the halls of Canberra where I am right now. And that's a very, very big problem. Why is it a big problem? Because men who are not masculine, who have been emasculated, naturally don't stand up to authoritarianism. They don't stand up to tyranny. They don't stand up to protect their families. They don't stand up to protect their nation. They don't stand up to protect their culture. And I think this push to emasculate men, specifically in the West, like I mentioned, it, um, it comes from on high. It's not an accident. When you have men that are emasculated, that don't even know which way is up and which way is down anymore, well, guess what? The people that really run the show, the globalists, the men, and it, and it is mostly men, unfortunately, that pull the strings from behind the curtain, from behind the scenes, they have ever-increasing levels of control over our society if men won't stand up and push back. So, yes, I think uh, days like International Men's Day are important days and, you know, we need to celebrate strong, healthy masculinity. It's not a bad thing to be a masculine male. It is a good thing. Make masculinity great again, is what I say. Well, one thing that I kind of find a little bit sad is that on International Men's Day, I understand they're trying to recognise the tragedy of male suicide, but I feel like these days should be a moment of celebration rather than sadness. Do you think that maybe we should have days that are celebrating all the best parts of men, making men feel better, telling young boys how great it is that they are men instead of using these events for such yeah. sad things? Absolutely. You're, you're completely right. It needs to be a celebration of all things that are good, that are masculine. And, and there are a lot of things there. But what we also need to do, Ali, what we also need to do is um, we need to, to, to uh, in a way, uh, be proud of masculinity again. Because the, these days, you know, if you're a boy, you're consistently told that you're bad and all this kind of stuff. You know, you can't mess around. You've got to sit still when boys' natural in inclination is to go and play and be rowdy. But, you know, we need to recognise that there are differences between the sexes. Men and women are different. I spoke about this in the Senate last week when I was talking about mothers and fathers both bringing a different um, aspect of a family unit. And it's, it's very important that we celebrate differences and that we say that it is okay to be a boy, but also celebrate the good things about masculinity, which 
is a lot because masculinity, whether we want to admit it or not, it built the West as we know it today. It built the safe, prosperous, um, free uh um, free civilization that we all get to enjoy, and if we lose masculinity, um, that civilization is very going is very quickly going to go down the toilet. So yes, I, we should. I get the feeling that men are restless at the moment because our society has changed dramatically in the last couple of hundred years. It's gone from being an active society to a sedentary society, and that doesn't really suit masculinity particularly well. But I want us to go somewhere else first. Now, not only is International Men's Day not recognised by the United Nations, because, you know, why would they? But trendy publications across the West are also viewing any recognition of men as being dangerous and problematic. Now, back in 2016, one of these publications discussed the topic of male suicide, which, as I said, is the focus of this year's event. But they did so by critiquing an observation that men are more likely than women to tragically die by their own hand. Now, what they said is this, quote, one of the main reasons that men are more likely to succeed in killing themselves is their choice of more aggressive and immediate, in other words, more masculine methods. While according to the Office of National Statistics, the most common suicide method for women is poisoning, men are more common to go for, you know, other means, end quote. Now, mm. that kind of sentiment suggests that masculinity is the reason that men are dying by their own hand. And they go on to make this explicit by stating, this is what I want you to comment on, it's not the only way masculinity harms men. Now, by that kind of idea, it seems like they're saying masculinity in and of itself is the reason that men are dangerous and being harmed. Crazy, crazy. Now, this goes back to what I was saying this whole time about the people that really run the world wanting to be rid of masculinity. And they'll do anything and everything to make masculinity evil, to make masculinity wrong, to make masculinity something that needs to be frowned upon. Because um, masculinity is the one thing that all tyrants fear. Strong men that want to protect their family, protect their kids, protect their culture, protect their nation, um, look after their community. That's what they are afraid of. They are afraid of this, hence the push to make masculinity a bad thing, to say that if you're masculine, you're bad, that the reason that, you know, suicides happen and everything else happen is because of masculinity. It is a lie. It is a lie. If men were more masculine, if men were, were, were taught from a, a young age, hey, look, Men all have feelings, yes, we get it. But the strength of the man is understanding that you have those feelings, being stoic about it, controlling those feelings, and then getting on with it. That is what it means to be a man. It is not to react to your emotions. It is not to, um, to be flippant about how you act. It is to be calculated. It is to be strong. And it is to stand up for the things that are important um, to you. To you, and those things are your family, your your country, your nation, uh, your community, etc. So I think this whole push uh, to uh, emasculate men, to take away masculinity, is that is what's dangerous. That's what's dangerous. That is when when you say to men, you know, you're an emotional being, act out, act out, you know, play play out to the things that are on your mind instead of being stoic, that's when you have problems. So what we need, like I said before, is we need more masculinity, not less of it.
That's well, what we need. I want to follow you up on that point a little bit because I noticed that when I put up a post over the weekend in praise of strong men, that's all I said, that the, you know, strong men are good, the Conservatives replied in thanks because they view strong men as being family men, working men, those who serve the nation mm. and those who are the breadwinners of the family. That's what they perceive as being strong men. But the left universally and immediately translated strong to mean violence, rape, war, abuse, and mm. anything along that line of thinking. It's it's almost if left-wing philosophy views male strength as a threat to itself. Now, I can kind of see where they're mm -hmm. coming from, because if you look at the male uh, left-wing figures in history, they're all tyrants and dictators and abusers. So perhaps they're being, yep. maybe that's where they're coming from. But I did also notice that they've added to the definition of toxic masculinity, those who have chauvinism, who have excessive love of patriotism of their country. That's apparently toxic. So is this uh, view that the left have, not just the people in power, but of the actual left-wing voters that males are bad, mm. is that coming from mm. the act, the culture of left-wing thought where they fear mm -hmm. men? Yeah, I think they might be onto something here because let's break down what leftism really is. Leftism, if you, you know, if you peel back the layers of the onion, so to speak, they are collectivists. That's what they are. They are collectivists at heart. They don't believe to their core in freedoms. Uh, let's let's put it in simple terms. They believe in big government. Uh, they believe in in the all-encompassing power of the state. They believe that um, others should provide for them. Others should accommodate them, etc. And because they believe these things, a strong masculine male is naturally the antithesis of that belief. So a strong masculine male is going to want to push back against authoritarianism. He's going to want to push back against an overly big state. He's going to push back against threats to his family, his nation, his country, his community. He's going to stand up for the weaker ones around him. He's going to push back against bullies and tyrants. You know, he's going to fight for what he believes in. He's going to stand up and say, no, that's what he's going to do. And that's what the left fears. The left fears this. So I completely understand why the left, even if they don't know that they're doing it, they don't know that, that they're even doing it, but intrinsically inside them, they have an innate fear of masculinity because they fear what masculinity means. And it means freedom. That's what it means. It means men that their nation are being threatened, their families are being threatened. They'll pick up a rifle. I'll just, what, what, one example. They'll pick up a rifle and they'll run towards the gunfire. They're not doing it because they want to, um, because they want to die. They're doing it because what's behind them, because their wife and kids and nation are behind them. That's why they charge towards the gunfire. And leftists hate that. They hate that because they're weak, pathetic little insects, these leftards. We should not be nice to them. That is what they are. They are degenerates. They are disgusting. The time is over for being nice to hard left activist types. Done, done. Well, the one good thing I can tell you about real women, the women who don't need to go and find pronouns to define who they are, is that they gravitate towards strong men because they recognise that civilization must be protected from all sorts of things and only strong men can do that. That's right. Can I make a quick comment on that? So we're talking about men today because this, you know, you've asked me about men and masculinity, but I also want to say that a strong man is not a strong man unless he has a strong woman by his side. So 
Men don't operate in a vacuum. It's not just one-sided. It is the yin and the yang. You know, you need both. You need a strong woman and a strong man together in the union to have a safe, prosperous, happy society. So I'm sure another time or, or with someone else, you can talk about women and strong women and that'll be great. But I just want to pe- point that out before the lefty activists say, oh, you're just talking about men. We're talking about men right now, but uh, do not fret lefty activists. I also believe in strong, feminine, powerful um, women as well as the counterbalance to that strong masculinity. We are talking about men today because a woman has asked you to talk about men on her program, just so the left understand <laughs> that. Uh, but look, one individual who embodies all of the masculine traits that are hated by the left is, of course, former US President Donald Trump. Now, I see you've received another little letter from Trump in the mail. Do you get the feeling that he is a serious <laughs> contender to be the next US president? If so, will that shake up our Australian politics just a little bit? Well, look, is he a serious contender? Absolutely he is. He is the only contender, in my opinion. I mean, we've got President Biden in the White House now that uh, the guy can't even string two words together. The guy can't even uh, put one foot in front of the other uh, and walk in a straight line. And the guy can't go up or downstairs. And you're telling me that this is the man who's running uh, the United States today. He's obviously not the one who's running the United States. You know who's running it? The deep state's running it. The people behind the scenes that pull the strings. But that's a whole different story. But yes, you know, I have written to Donald Trump in the past and Donald Trump has written back. Uh, Donald Trump, he is the only man, the only man that can lead the United States. And people will, will often say to me, um, why do you care what happens in America? Well, ladies and gentlemen, Australia is only some years behind America. Whatever happens in the United States will eventually happen here. So it is in our interest to have a strong America, a proud America, a brave America, a prosperous America, because guess who's going to benefit? We are, because we are one of their very, very close allies. So when I when I support Donald Trump, I'm doing it, yes, because I think the guy's a great guy and he's done a great job, but also uh, for selfish reasons as well, because I want Australia to be a better, safer, more powerful country when we have the right man in power in the White House on Pennsylvania Avenue, and that man is Donald J. Trump, Trump 2024. Well, I think uh, if you wanted to put an image of toxic masculinity in the dictionary, you'd probably put Biden there, a weak man who doesn't know where he is, who creates hard times for people. Now, that is what I call toxic masculinity. But uh, continuing on the idea of men for today's session, because why not? One bloke who has had enough of the left-wing agenda is Argentina's new anti-socialist president. Now, he's starring in TikTok videos, wielding chainsaws and wandering around whiteboards, tearing down woke government departments. Now, I'm not sure if he's crazy yet. Time will tell. But the left-wing media is definitely panicking because who would have thought Argentina would be the first ones to give up socialism? Do you think that geopolitics, it's not just his election, you've also got the European elections bringing forward centre-right people as well. Do you feel like we are seeing a shift finally away in rebellion of all this left-wing thought? Yes. Now, there will always be a shift away from left-wing ideology, always, because left-wing ideology destroys nations. That's what happens. Let's look at Argentina, for example, right? Um, Argentina was uh, one of the richest, most wealthiest countries in the Americas uh, previously. However, 
leftist ideology took it from a prosperous, rich, wealthy nation where everyone had a high standard of living into a complete dumpster fire. That's what leftist ideology has done to that country. I mean, they've got inflation now over 100% uh, at the moment. It's it's completely ruined. So the left-wing ideology destroys that state naturally. Strong men rise, of course. Like you mentioned before, um, weak men create hard times. Hard times create strong men. Strong men create good times. And then it goes back around again. We all know that. So we are going to see uh, the pendulum swing back the other way all over the world in the next, you know, next generation or so when people realise that the socialist ideologies that we are um, toying with at the moment is not a recipe for for freedom, success and prosperity. It's a recipe for disaster. That's what it is, a recipe for disaster. So, yes, Australia, okay, Australia wouldn't be um, wouldn't be in as good of a place as it is now if we didn't have the mining sector. If we didn't have mining, uh, basically keeping our country afloat right now, which they're trying to get rid of, by the way, they're trying to push back on you know coal, you know gas, minerals, etc. We would be stuffed right now, and we would be much closer to to um, to uh, being the the uh, the Venice, the uh, Argentina of our region. So we have mining to, to thank for saving our country. But I don't think Australia is that far behind. I think within my generation, we're going to see a massive swing to the right. And I'm not just talking about over Liberal Party comes back to power. I'm talking about a complete rejection of socialism, leftist ideology, woke ideology out the door and we're going to see a new generation of people come up that just say, uh-uh, no thanks, we've seen where this goes, we completely reject it, conservatism is cool again, right-leaning values are cool again, we believe in freedom, we don't want authoritarianism, we don't want big government, we want limited government, we want to be able to be the masters of our own destiny, that's what's going to happen. Well, one final question here today. These are hard times. There is no denying that Australia is in a terrible position and certainly not the position we should be in given how hard we've all worked and none, nobody has made mistakes in the public arena. These are political mistakes. So my question is, mm. are we governed by weak men and can you see us finding any strong men? I mean, we've got you, but uh, precious little else I see coming up. Do you think we're going to see mm. more rising strength, yeah. be they men or women, in Australian politics to combat this? Or are we just kind of floating along tied onto the edge of the UK and US? Yeah, look, I think we are going to see it happen. It's definitely going to happen. I'm going to, um, I'm going to say I don't think it's going to be me, or the current crop of politicians that are there right now, we're going to see an entirely new generation come up and take this country back towards conservative right-leaning values. I think I'm too early to the party, and so is everyone else that's elected at the moment. We're, we're, we're too early because the country, although we're going in the wrong direction, we're not completely at the end of our tether yet. But we are going to get there because socialism only ends one way. It ends in misery. It ends in destruction. It ends in failure. It ends in it ends in you not having enough food to eat and standing in a breadline. That's what it ends up going to. Um, like I said before, mining is keeping us afloat right now. But these weak men, and they are all weak men that I'm surrounded by, not all, but most are weak men. They are setting the stage now. 
they are setting the stage now for a very, very bleak future for Australians. A very bleak future. That's what they're doing. There will come a time when leaders will rise and swing that pendulum with force back to the right. It is going to happen. I just don't think it's going to be now because we're not at that point yet, but I'm just laying the groundwork. I'm putting the foundations down and the guy or girl who's going to come next is going to take it all the way. We'll see. Oh, well, I don't know. You're young. You could still be there when the uh, restoration <laughs> of Western civilization in Australia takes place. But look, thank you so much for defending the rights of men and for speaking for them. You're almost alone in this, Babette. That's the sad fact of reality in Australia here today. And uh, look, I hope to catch you again and to talk about mining, because I think that's an important topic that we should touch on if we can for the survival of our civilization. But for now, that's all we have time for. Thank you, Ali. Have a great one. Bye-bye. Love you. your show. Thank you. And that is all we have time for this week. We will catch you next time.